we've been talking about heaven, and we're wrapping up our series on heaven. Um, and um, there's actually a video clip I want to show you. Uh, it's, it's from a pastor um, that, that I like to watch uh, and listen to. And um, this is a clip, uh, Pete Briscoe. This is a clip of his. It's available on right now, actually, as part of a sermon series on Daniel uh, called Living in Exile. And uh, Kevin and Deb, who were actually on vacation in Hawaii, uh, sent me an email and said, hey, Matt, you know what? We've loved your series, and we were listening to this sermon, and this little clip came up, and it just seemed like this grand summative exclamation point. And you know what? So I watched it, I listened, and I, I can't help but agree, and I'd love to share it with you. What it might feel like when we get there. Because you see, the sun is always on your face here. The warmth, the light. And as you walk through the countryside, you marvel at the lovely place you live. It's a kingdom unlike any other. There are no weeds, no stray dogs, no chemotherapy. It is warm but not hot, cool but not cold. There is snow right next to the beach and children snuggle in the manes of lions. There is no slavery here, no exploitation, no illness, no hunger, no terrorism, no divorce, no confusion, no vitriol, no selfishness, no hate. The beauty hurts your eyes sometimes. It's not painful hurt. It's the hurt of awe. How can the green be so green? The birds sing in 64-part harmony. Everyone gets a personal koala bear. (laughs) Love is in the air everywhere. Each person you meet, you love instantly. You can't help yourself. Annoyances are a distant memory. Sad and angry tears have dried. Joyful tears flow. There's forgiveness in the water. There's grace in every bite of food. Sleep comes easily and lasts as long as necessary. And no one gets the flu. There is order perfect order. Buses arrive on time. Groceries never spoil. And yes, you can always get a tea time. The soundtrack follows you around. The music is new every day. And it's better every day, too. Lyrics dance around the person of Jesus, revealing something new of him with every passing verse. Jesus is everywhere here. You see him every day. That smile that destroyed your religion greets you daily. And you're completely at ease. And this is all yours, brother and sister, to enjoy, to lead, to rule. You will go to work to a role perfectly designed just for you. And there will be no one in the new heavens and no one on the new earth that can do it better than you. You will pour your lives into your siblings and they will pour theirs into yours. You will work side by side. No dissension, no split votes, no backbiting, no guile. You will laugh, belly laugh, and you will feel deeply and perfectly. And you, my friend, will make a difference. You will learn continuously. You will love perfectly, completely, absolutely, and unendingly. You will enjoy unhindered union with Jesus Christ every single moment. And this is just the first day. Tomorrow will be better, and each day after that, better than the last, as the kingdom we have been given grows and deepens as Jesus invests in it through us all. It is going to be great, and it is going to be so worth it.
it's going to be so worth the pouring out of your life. See, the whole point of this series is so that we can start to understand something that's maybe a little bit more profound than the way we think about normal life. See, pop culture tells us that uh, that's the one. Oh, man. Nailed it. Pop culture tells us, and you, you've heard this expression before, that you have to live for the dash, right? You're born, and you have such a small amount of time, and then you die. And so if you think of a tombstone, you think of your birth date and your death date and your life summed up in this dash. And so we've been told, I've been told, from school on up as a counselor, I was trained to convince people that our job our goal, the way that we live our life is to live for the dash. Some of you have maybe bought into that. Some of you have maybe said that before. Some of you maybe believe it in the core of your being. Listen to me. It is wrong. It couldn't be further from the truth. And it betrays a terrible misunderstanding of something called eternity. When you live for the dash... That means you pour everything that you have, everything that you are, every ounce of your being, every bit of your soul, everything that you have ability to control or have any part of, you pour it all into this earthly life that you live that is over in a blip. But here's the reality. As Christians, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Not just you believe in Jesus Christ, but you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian here this morning, understand this reality. You will live on this earth twice. The first time is a blip. It's a dot. It's over like that. The second time will go on for eternity. It's a line that never ends. It just goes and goes and goes. Do not waste your life living for the blip. But pour out your life living for the line. See, this is is what we've been trying to figure out um, over the course of of this series. And, And you know what? Here's the deal. It's hard, and I get that. I get that it's difficult. It's difficult because we're hardwired to think that this is all there is. Because our experience, because of our sin nature, because of, because of the way that we are, this is all we know. This life, this temporary life, boy, if you are here and you're a younger person, then this is really hard for you. If you're uh, my age or you're starting to get older, uh, maybe some of you are here and you're getting closer to the end of your life, this makes more sense to you. But if you're, if you're a teenager or, or even into your early 20s, this is terribly hard to grasp. And the reason for that is because all we know is our experience. And our experience is that this is life. And this is what I have to get. And this is what I have to make worth it. And this thing right here is what I have to squeeze every last little bit of juice out of that I can. And so I want to experience everything that there is. I don't want to waste any of it. The problem with that is that it's woefully short-sighted. Because if you really were honest with yourself... Even if you're here this morning and somebody who does not know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you just got drugged to church or you're a teenager who's not sure what you believe yet, listen to me. In your heart, you know what you're thinking. You know what's real. Look at this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. And then you'll see the bolded part there. He has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people can't see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. You cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What you can see is this right here. This is all you know because this is all you've experienced. So the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end escapes you right now. That's what you need to grab hold of. 
That's what you need to start to wrestle with. The whole scope of God's work from beginning to end is something that you need to wrestle to the ground and you need to hold it with everything you've got because it feeds everything. Listen to me. God has planted eternity in your heart. You are wired for better than this and you know it. And some of you, because you're wired for better than this, what you do is you just try to make it okay. You try to make it better in the moment. You try to make it better with stuff, and it drives us into debt. You try to make it better with sex, and we end up with relationships that we were never meant to have. You try to make it better with, with uh, promotions and accolades at work, and you end up selling out your family so that you can be important somewhere else. Listen, I... That need that you have is real. That desire for more is natural. It's just misguided. Understand this. You were made for more than this. And knowing that's not arrogant, knowing that your life is important isn't arrogant. In fact, what it is is it's refreshing, it's freeing, and and it should be life-giving to you. And so what I want to encourage you to do as we, as we start to tackle this last week of this series, this idea of what does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven with the eternal in mind, living for the line, not for the dot. When we start really thinking about what that means, we start understanding this. Because eternity has been planted in your human heart, you are naturally going to long for more your heart is going to scream for more. You want more. And that's not wrong. But what you have to be careful of is that in your desire for more, that you don't allow the misdiagnosis to reign in your life. There's a little thing on the back of your bulletin um, that uh, Randy Alcorn has put there, and I'll just, I'll share it with you here very briefly. It's, it's just this simple idea. The lack of an eternal perspective, it sets, up, uh, it sets us up not only for discouragement, but also for sin, because we tell ourselves, if I don't experience it now, that you never will. If I don't have an intimate relationship now, I never will. If I don't have the means to go there, I never will. And then we feel desperate, tempted to take shortcuts so we can get what we think we want. We're tempted toward fornication, dishonesty, theft. We live a life in regret, greed, and envy. But if we understand that we'll actually live in the new heavens and on the new earth, a new universe full of new opportunities, then we can forego certain pleasures and experiences now knowing that we can enjoy them later. Homesickness is the most often misdiagnosed thing that we deal with. You are all homesick because you are hardwired for eternity. It doesn't make sense in your everyday living. It doesn't make sense because as you look around, this is all you know. But in your heart, God has planted the seed of eternity. God has planted eternity in the human heart. And so you're wired for more. And so here's the thing that you have to do. You have to spend your life pouring it all out for the sake of the next one. And here's, here's, here's the thing. It's the grand paradox. If your life doesn't make sense to you, racked with anxiety and depression and want and it's never enough and it's never enough and it doesn't work, listen to me because this is the grand paradox. I'm still trying to figure this out on a daily basis. Intellectually, I get it, but every day I seem to forget and I have to remind myself and if you just understood this and if we could live like this, it would change everything. The paradox is this. The more that you pour this life out for the sake of the next one, the more this life works, the more it makes sense, and the more you find joy that is just unadulterated and good. The more that the intense need that you have right now, the more you pour your life out for the sake of what's to come, the more this life makes sense and it works and it fills you. 
This is, this is like the best trade ever because here's what you, here's what you have to understand. It's, it's the things that I'm trying to find to make this life mean something good, whether it's sex or alcohol or porn or work or whatever relationships I try to find out there, whatever it is that I try to get to make this life work, bigger, better cars, newer, bigger houses, whatever it is that I'm trying to find to make this life work, it doesn't make it work. It just points out this gap between what I know I'm created for and what I'm experiencing. And so it makes me more miserable and it creates this cycle that I just spiral in and I can't seem to help. Plus, it costs me in eternity. It's not working for me for eternity. But... When I understand that I'm living for this, and I start to pour myself out, and and, and some of you are confused, what do I mean when I say pour myself out? We'll get there, hang on one second. Okay, but when I start to pour myself out for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, when I start to, to give everything I have now for eternity, not only am I storing up treasures for myself in heaven, crowns that I get to lay at the feet of Jesus when I get there, I'm doing that, but at the same time, I'm finding meaning and value and purpose, and my life makes sense for the first time ever. Listen, it does not have to be this way. It can be better than this. And some of you are like, man, my life is perfect, and you, fine, just put a pin in it, It'll be okay. I'll, we'll get back to you. For everybody else that's struggling right now, and you know who you are, and I, listen to me. It doesn't have to be this way. It can be better. But you have to shift in the way you think. And I know it's hard, and I know it's not easy, because we've never experienced eternity. We've only experienced the temporary. Friends, that's where faith comes in. That's, that's, that's all faith is, is trusting God with what's coming. I was in Haiti once on a mission trip. Um, it was kind of a fun mission trip. Uh, my oldest daughter and my mom were both part of the group from Bethany that went. Um, and uh, my mom, love my mom, but she has terrible um, syncope. She doesn't do well in heat. And she has a lot of anxiety. So Haiti was the perfect place for her. <laughs> but frankly, I love her heart, man. She couldn't pass the chance. She, she was a relatively new Christian at that point, um, had lived a life of religion, but was a relatively new Christian, and just couldn't wait to be part of a mission to go and tell people about Jesus. And um, since then, that's why I appreciate things like work is worship that... Uh, that, that Jim is hosting here at the church that, that we'll get to be a part of because I think since then we, we've come to realize, you know what, I can be on mission right here where I am. But you know when you're new at being a Christian, you're like, oh, well, if I want to be on mission, I have to go on a missions trip. Uh, every day when you go to work is a missions trip. But we went and, and uh, it was good. But one of the last days that we were there was the sightseeing day. And we drove this bus up this long road that you're not supposed to drive buses up. One, because like if you fall, like up, like you're going to die. And I'm sitting next to my mother in, in the, the seat on the bus, and she looks out the window, and she just lets out this shriek of panic. Because literally, when you looked out the window, you could not see ground, you could see air. And this guy is driving with abandon. Like, I don't even know. But we get finally where we're going, and we get out, and we kind of climb ourselves down into this little thing. With, there's, there's a lake, uh, and there was a jumping rock up on top. And uh, our guide explained to us that uh, it was quite safe to climb probably the 25, 30 feet and jump into the lake. And we kind of looked at him incredulous. We had a bunch of teenagers with us who um, were like, yes, please. And those of us that were adults were like, ooh, show your work. And so he did. He climbed up there and he jumped off and what seemed like a, a full five count on his way down. Splash. We thought, oh man, how are we ever going to get back down the mountain? 
But he came up, and he was great, and, and he, 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 the kids all ran to the thing, and they climbed it, and they went, and they jumped, and it was good, and, and then they kept going, and they kept going, and they kept going. I didn't jump. I'm not that guy. Riley went, and she can tell you about her experience. It took her a while to jump. She was up there for a while, because there's something in the human brain that, that makes this height feel like it's twice as tall. And also, one of the fun features of this was that when you looked over, all you could see was rock. You knew, you knew it was safe. You'd seen other people do it. You saw other people jump. You saw other people come back up. You, you heard them laughing and squealing and, and, and climbing back up to do it again. But when you stood there and you looked, all you saw was rock. And it took Riley a while to jump. But I never jumped. Fear got me. My experience got me. But the people that jumped, they jumped and they jumped and they jumped and there was exhilaration and joy. I'm going to be honest with you. It's the way I want to live my life. I want, to, I want to live this life with an understanding because heaven is going to be so good, because heaven is going to be so awesome. I want to live my life with this understanding that this life is not a problem to be solved. This life is an adventure to be lived. This life is an adventure to be lived, and that should free you. That should free you to love like you've never loved before with abandon. That should free you to pour yourself out for the least of these. And you know what? If it takes resources that you were hoping to use for something else, who cares? Because you are not living to have all of this grand experience in this blip of a life. You are living for this line of eternity that is never going to end. And so you know what? If I have to skip my new car because I want to pour into the lives of people that can't make things work right now so that I can share the gospel unapologetically and try to bring life where there's death, you know what? That's worth it. It's worth it because all of my grand experiences here are never going to fill what I'm designed for because God has planted eternity in my heart. God hasn't planted a brand new car in my heart. God hasn't planted a bigger house. God hasn't planted a better relationship. God hasn't planted um, a promotion at work. God hasn't planted better or more sex. God hasn't planted a need for something right now in my heart. What God has planted in my heart is eternity. And it's the thing that if I live this life right, if I pour myself out for it, that I am chasing after it. I want to love like that. I want to do ministry that's worthy of the God of the universe that chose to love and save me. And when I say ministry, you think, well, that's fine and good, Matt. You're a pastor. No, 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 no. You... I want you to do ministry that's worthy of the God that chose to love and save you. Where you're at, where you're planted, it's not a mistake. This town, by the way, I don't know how many times you've heard it since the fire, that this town seems to just have some pretty bad luck. There was a flood, and this is since 2008, so this is in the last decade. I'm sure there's more stuff past that, but... I'm not that old. I, I didn't live here that long. I don't know all of it, but there was a flood in 08. There was a windstorm in 2011. Uh, there was a tornado. Um, there's now this massive fire, and there's more, and, and, and it seems like uh, that first year I lived here, it seemed like there, were, there was a new suicide every week for, for a couple of months. Uh, that first year, Carrie and I were looking at each other going, like, what did we get ourselves into? Where are we? And now, now the fire, and it all comes up again. Like, it's like, what's going on? Listen to me. This, this world is broken. And Satan is having his way with where we live, but God has put us on mission. And when you pour yourselves out for the sake of the gospel, here's what that means. I don't know. And that's not a cop-out. 
Listen to me carefully. I don't know because I have no idea what God has in store for you today. But Ephesians 2.10 tells me this, that you're God's craftsmanship, you were made new in Christ Jesus, you are his work of art, he formed you, and he remade you in Jesus. Why? So that you can be about the work that he has prepared for you today a long time ago. You have a divine appointment today. I don't know what it is, but here's what I promise you. If you say to yourself, okay, okay, God, I'm going to pour myself out for the sake of the gospel today. I need to meet needs. This town is falling apart. Satan seems to be having his way. This reminds me a little bit of when, when Jesus was talking to Peter, and he says, oh, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like flour, but it's okay because I've got you. It seems to me that Vinton is always being sifted like flour, like Satan is trying to have his way here, but God has said, it's okay, Vinton, I've got you because I've got church in Vinton. I've got my people in Vinton. They will bring my kingdom in real tangible ways. And you say, well, Matt, how am I supposed to bring God's kingdom in a real tangible way? I don't know. Here's what I know. If you walk out this door saying, okay, God, I am completely yours, the answer is yes. If you walk out this door saying, okay, God, the answer is yes. Now tell me the question. I promise you, you will not get very far before God puts an opportunity right in front of you for you to act and for you to act now. And if you say yes, then he will put another opportunity in front of you. If you say no then how can you be surprised that God doesn't talk to you? How can you be surprised when you say no to God? You say, well, but God never tells me. What, well, it's because when he does, you say no. So start fresh. Confess the times that you've said no. Make a commitment to say yes where God leads you. And I promise you, that with open eyes and an open heart, you will have a job to do for the sake of the gospel before you get very far out of this parking lot. If you listen closely enough, if people mingle and talk, you might have one before you walk out the doors. It's simply a question of how serious are we about this stuff. If we are really living for eternity. If we are living this life with heaven in mind, knowing that God has planted a seed of eternity in our hearts, then, uh, I don't know, guys, there, there's not a lot that should hold us back. But one thing that we are going to struggle with one thing we are going to struggle with is our enemy. See, and some of you are saying, Matt, this makes perfect sense to me. I get this. But yet when I walk out of here, life happens, and it doesn't work for me anymore. And so here's something I need you to know. When you start to live for heaven, seriously, or the reason that it's been so hard for you to live for heaven is because the devil doesn't want you to. I mean, I just as, as clear as I can say it, here's a couple of things that we have from Scripture. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11, um, and he has a big statement before this about living for the gospel and this and that, but he says, so that, right, we, we, live, we live obedient lives, we forgive, we study Scripture, uh, we run from sexual immorality, we do those things. Why? So that Satan will not outsmart us. Because we are familiar with his evil schemes. And something I, I know very clearly from that text, if you read that whole context there in 2 Corinthians 2, is that Satan is trying to sidetrack you. Satan wants to ruin you. There's two things that Satan wants to do to you. One is he wants your soul. He wants you to spend eternity in hell. Short of that, short of that, he wants to ruin your life and keep you from getting anybody else to heaven. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, then that is off the table. He doesn't get to get your soul anymore, but he still then is actively at work trying to make sure that you don't get anybody else and trying to make sure that you are the kind of Christian that nobody wants to talk to because you suck and you know it. Like you're miserable and you're like, this is the Mark Johnson thing. Mark Johnson always used to say, I used to be sad and miserable. And then I found Jesus and he turned my life around and now I'm miserable and sad. <laughs> it's a Mark Johnsonism. If you want to be a miserable and sad Christian, Satan's going to be okay with that. 
if you can't have a conversation without, without dwelling on how everything is wrong, Satan's going to be okay with that. If you can't actively be about sharing the truth of the gospel and ministering to people that need you, Satan's okay with that. But we're not, we're not unwise to his schemes. We're familiar with his schemes. We know what he's about. We can't let him outsmart us. Peter says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan would love to devour you. And he does it in a couple of ways. First of all, by the way, I want to be clear about this because right now I've started, some of you are awfully uncomfortable. As soon as I say the devil, because we live in a, a modern and postmodern culture, when I say the devil, you get weirded out. The devil, Satan, he has this great place in our theology, like where we, we acknowledge and we understand that Satan is real, he's in our theology, but because of the age that we live in, right, we don't, we don't give him any mind. We don't pay him any attention when it comes to real world things. We're like, okay, Satan is real. We know that. The Bible says it. We believe the Bible. So theologically, we understand that Satan is real, but we don't give him any mind when things start to fall apart or when things go bad or when we get sidetracked, right? When, when I am going along really great with Carrie and we are having the best time ever because we are officially the best couple that we know, we talk about it all the time, we have a plaque on our wall that says world's greatest marriage. One of our, our original small groups bought that for us because we kept bragging about how good our marriage was. Um, we're going along great. And then the littlest thing happens. The littlest thing happens. And in my brain for just a second, I'm like, I could do better. I don't have to put up with that. Right, or we're going along great, and, and, and the littlest thing happened, and Carrie's like, I can't believe he doesn't love me. What's that about? Why? I mean, am I really so confused as to wonder why that happens? Friends, you've got to ask yourself a lot of times, like, who else is talking to me here? Who else, who else is feeling is happening right now. What else is going on right here? Because sometimes it makes zero sense to me how I can go in any given situation from I have a fully devoted heart to follow God to, ooh, that sin seems fun. And I know I'm not the only one that happens to. Like, who else is pouring into me right now? Read through Scripture. Who was it that got the Chaldeans to, to steal Job's herd and murder his servants? Well, it was Satan. Clearly, Satan. Yet, do we give Satan a second thought when we have terrorism and political issues and, and things happening today? No, not, not usually, right? Who kept the poor woman bent over, physically bent over for 18 years? The one that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. Again, clearly Satan. Yet you've got headaches or you can't sleep at night right after you decide to get serious about waking up in the morning to spend time in prayer and in Bible study and you're confused about why that is. You know, who prompted Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the apostles? in the book of Acts. One more time, it was Satan. Yet when we have fallouts here at church, when we bicker over ministry or music or parking lots, I don't, I'm just making stuff up. When we bicker over parking lots. Who fights over a parking lot? <laughs> Think about your examples first, Hans. Come on. We bicker over those things? Do we give Satan one thought? No. Listen to me. Satan is real, and we are not unaware of his evil schemes, and he is roaring around looking for someone to devour. Satan is real. 
And what he does is he offers you this carnival of counterfeits. It's a John Eldridge term uh, from his book, uh, Wild at Heart, that the world um, Satan offers you is this carnival of counterfeits. Things that look good, but they're not good. They're not right. They're not eternal. And I wish... I wish that somebody had told me a long time ago that the things that seem so attractive in the world that my parents kept saying no to, that the church kept saying no to, I wish that someone had been able to convince me that that was a carnival of counterfeits. You ever, you ever um, so desperately wanted a toy at a carnival, and you saved all your tickets for it, and you'd spend how much money getting tickets so that you could have like a, a $2 toy, right? Or you play skee-ball for hours and hours and hours, or the crane machine, the stupid crane machine, where you put in 50 cents and you try to get the toy, and you put in 50 cents and you try to get a toy, and you get that toy, how long does it last before it breaks? And if it doesn't break, how long does it last before you're just done with it? You find it somewhere that you got to throw it away later. That's what the world offers. It's a carnival of counterfeits. They don't last. It's not good. It's not what your heart really desires because you were built for eternity. And do not let Satan get in the way of that. Don't let Satan get in the way of that. Because we're made for more. Right? And it's the image of God that's in you that enrages hell. Get this, understand this, please hear me now. The more you commit to living a life that is on mission, the more you commit to living for eternity, the more you commit to living as a citizen of heaven on foreign soil here. The more you commit to that, the more Satan will throw everything he has at you. When Satan turns up the heat... That is not a bad thing. That should motivate you to trust God, to ask for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and to push ahead. Because we're made for more. Colossians 3.1 tells us this. It says, Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. See, this is you as a Christian, someone who is following and trusting in Jesus Christ. This is now you. You have been raised to new life with Christ. And as such, you are actually placed, not physically, physically, here you are, okay? But eternally, you are placed with Christ. So what, what the author here is telling us, what Paul is telling us is, hey, Christian, do this. Stop looking two feet in front of you and trying to figure out how to do two feet in front of you. But set your sight on this. See, some of you have set your sight on the completely wrong thing. You've set your sight on, on your next promotion. You've set your sight on finding a spouse. You've set your sights on uh, buying a bigger home. Some of you have set your sights on having children. You've set your sights on any number of things that you think will satisfy, but Paul says, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Set your sights in heaven. Set your sights on the reality of what's to come, on the eternal, because that's where Jesus is, and that's where you want to be. And when you really understand that, it changes everything. I don't, I don't want to make light of death. Death is tragic. It's unnatural. Yet at the same time, it's very natural. We will all, unless Jesus comes back in very short order, I guess I got to finish. Um, we will all die. It's natural in that way, but it's unnatural in that it was never part of God's design. 
So I don't want to make light of death. It's evil. It's tragic. Jesus dies. Or, Jesus cries at Lazarus's tomb because the death of his friend causes him to mourn. Death is not something for us to take flippantly, but death is not something for us to be afraid of. See, we, even us Christians, we live life too afraid of death, but death, without making light of it, get this, death doesn't matter for the Christian. It is the last pain, it is the last thing that we will have to deal with, and what's coming is so good. Okay, get this. As citizens of heaven, we get to live free because death will be conquered. For Christ, this is Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 15 here, for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. This is a given. This is a fact. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death will be destroyed. You do not have to fear death. We get down to 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and we see this. Oh, death, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death is powerless over the Christian. Death has no power over you when you follow Christ. And when you get that, you can live a life free of the fear of what's next. And the fear of what's next, I mean, we all think about death. Whether now, I mean, I say we all think about death. We all at some point think about death. We've got people in the congregation who are struggling. We've got folks um, who have family members that are ill or that have just passed or family members. We're praying for, for Scott Lee and his family. His, his mother is, is terribly um, sick with cancer. Uh, Mark Johnson's sisters, he has multiple sisters that are really struggling. One's in the hospital. The other has um, what appears to be terminal cancer. Got a lot of things going on, and there's more I'm missing, I know. And, and death is real, but for the Christian, death is nothing to fear. And when you stop fearing death, you get to live a life that pleases God. It's just that simple. And it's where real joy comes from. Oh my goodness, get this. It's, it's, it's the reality of this. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time, you're going to laugh. You ever wonder what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes? He says, blessed are those who mourn because they are going to rejoice. Blessed are those who weep now because in due time, you're going to laugh. You heard Pete Briscoe say it. You're going to belly laugh. I wonder if you can, okay, now this is, forgive me because I'm me and I have to wonder these things. And because I have a microphone, I have to wonder them out loud. I wonder if in heaven you can laugh so hard that you accidentally pee yourself. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you just know what I'm talking about. You've laughed that hard before. In heaven, you're going to laugh like you've never laughed. I think the answer's no. We'll find out. It's weird. I got... I, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, blessed are you who mourn now because in time you'll weep. And some of you fear death, and I just want to say this. You don't have to fear death. Randy Elkhorn talks about death like it's a surprise party. I mean, honestly, think about this. So you go to a party with your friend. Your friend picks you up and takes you to a party. And you're there, and, and, and there's people, you know, and you're, you're chatting with, with people that you like. And, and it's like, okay, this party's all right. Maybe it'll get better. You know, it's not bad. But, but, you know, you have all these high hopes and you go and you're having some conversations and it's a decent party and you're, you're doing this and whatever. And then um, your friend all of a sudden comes to you and says, hey, it's time to go. And the party's still going and you're like, oh, I, I don't want to go. It's not time to go yet. I'm going to miss out on something great if I go now. But they say, no, you got to go. And so you go and, and your friend drops you off and you walk up the sidewalk and you walk up the steps and you walk into your house and you go to turn on the lights and you can sense that there's somebody there and it kind of freaks you out a little bit, but you turn on the light and it's a surprise party for you. It's people you haven't seen in forever. And you have these great conversations and you have all the great food. Everything that you, that you crave is there. And you, and you talk and you laugh and you visit and then one by one, the people from the other party that you really liked, they start to show up. One at a time. They start to show up and join the party. It's kind of the way that heaven will be. We may not feel like we're ready to leave, but when we do and, and we walk through the door 
as Christians, what's coming is so good. That's the party. We feel like if I die now, it's like I'm leaving the party. I'm leaving all this behind. I'm going to miss out on all these experiences. I'm going to miss all of this goodness. I'm not going to miss anything. You are going to miss. I'm going here to the real party. And you know what? You're coming, and you'll get here. And when you do, as sad as you maybe were to leave this party because you were thinking, oh, it's, it's okay, and it, maybe it'll get better, and it's good, and I like these people. What? But you know what? You don't even know. We're called to live as citizens of heaven because what's coming is so good. Jesus says, you know what? Those who weep now, in due time, you'll laugh. It's this grand thing. What does it mean to have joy in suffering? It's that strange Christian thing that we have joy in suffering. Look, we read it three different places. Paul says, I'm glad when I suffer. James says, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Okay? Peter says, instead, be glad for these trials make you partners with Christ. We are supposed to have joy in suffering. We hate suffering. I don't like suffering. Peter and James and Paul weren't saying, hey, be on the lookout for suffering because it is awesome. What they were saying is, when you suffer, you don't have to hide from it. You don't have to drown it in alcohol. You don't have to decide that God's not worth it because he can't stop the suffering. You don't have to find comfort in work. You don't have to find comfort in pornography. You don't have to find comfort in pushing people away. When you suffer, you can actually find joy because it's temporary and you're living this eternal thing. And Jesus tells you, man, blessed are those who suffer now because... And they are going to laugh like they've never laughed before. Here, here, here's what I need you to know about all of that. And that's just this. As we wrap up this series, I need you to understand this truth. Simply says this. Biblical realism is akin to worldly optimism. I've had people tell me before when we talk about heaven and we talk about how good it's going to be, they'll say something like, no, you know what? I'm just, I'm a realist. You got to have joy in your suffering. I can't. I can't have joy in my suffering because I'm a realist. Well, get this. Wrap your head around this. You must understand this. Biblical realism, reality, according to the Bible, is what we would call overly optimistic. And that's just real. That's not best case scenario. Listen to me. It's just that good. Uh, last thing I'll share with you here. It's one of my favorite, uh, favorite chunks of literature ever. It's the last paragraph of the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's allegory about life, tragedy, suffering, goodness of God and eternity. It's, it's worth a read. It's not just for children. Us adults can enjoy it too. Uh, but in his book, The Last Battle, last paragraph of the series says this. As C.S. Lewis writes, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, this is the key, for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Perhaps that analogy will help you understand what we're doing. We talk about the blip and the line and how it's... This is the cover and the title page. The story doesn't start until we get to the new earth. And listen to me, every chapter will be better than the chapter before. Would you pray with me?
Father God, we know that what's coming is so good. My prayer is that you will allow us to live this life with freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom from the fear of death, anxiety. Freedom from the crushing pain of people we've lost. Father, I ask that, that you help us to live this life in anticipation of what's to come. Freedom from the fear of missing out. Knowing that when we pour ourselves out, when we spend our time, our money, our, our talent, our resources, everything for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of reaching those who need to know the truth of Jesus Christ, that we will um, reap those rewards in heaven. And what a glorious day it will be when we put our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Father, I pray that, that you will help us be wise about the carnival of counterfeits that Satan offers to sidetrack us and get in the way. I pray that you'll help us recognize his intention and desire to turn ourselves um, into mercenaries that are living for our own kingdom instead of the kingdom of God that we were created for. I pray that you'll help us always be wise to the schemes of the enemy. Father, I pray that you will help us embrace the truth of the gospel. That those of us that know and follow Jesus Christ are certain of an eternity in heaven where every day is better than the day before and there is no sorrow and no pain and only goodness and laughter and joy that abounds and apparently where we all get our personal koala bear. Father, I pray that you'll burn that truth into our hearts that we as Christians are citizens of a greater country than this. That we are citizens of heaven and that we are on mission. Father, we love you and we praise you and we just thank you for all things. Amen.